Hello and welcome to The Adventures of Paul Temple from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now on BBC Radio 4, Professor Geoffrey Richards reveals some rarely heard voices from the archive as he begins our series on The Radio Detectives. A famous signature tune heralds a famous name as we send for Paul Temple. The familiar strains of Vivian Ellis's Coronation Scott surely one of the most famous signature tunes in radio history. It's indelibly associated with the first and most enduring of the radio detectives, Paul Temple. Together with his wife, Steve, Paul Temple encountered dozens of crimes in a record-breaking career, in the process becoming a favourite of listeners nationwide. In this, the first of our series on some of the great sleuths in radio history, we'll be looking at what made Paul Temple so popular and talking to some of the people who made him a legend of the golden age of radio. And we'll be giving you a chance to hear some rare gems from the BBC archives. You know, you're drinking far too much coffee, Paul. Mm, it's a sign I've been working hard. Have you really finished the novel? Mm-hmm. Finished it last night. Paul, mm-hmm. that man over there, near the service table, keeps staring at us. Yes, I saw him. His name's Morris Lonsdale. He's a financier. Excuse me, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Lonsdale asked me to give you this note. Oh, thank you. What is it, Paul? He says he'd like to see me in his office. What about, I wonder? (laughs) We'd better go and find out, darling. That was the most famous of the Paul Temples, Peter Cook, spelt C-O-K-E, with the definitive Steve, Marjorie Westbury. The programmes remind us of a world half a century away, a world which we'll re-enter for the next half an hour. When the listener at home heard the Coronation Scott, he or she knew what to expect from the characters. Action from Paul, a little feminine intuition from Steve, and the regular repetition of Paul's catchphrase, by Timothy. For the star of the show, however, hearing that famous piece brought trepidation, and still does, 30 years on. Whenever it's played now, I get nervous, because it started off every programme, and I still get shivers down my back when I hear it, because there were so many things that could have gone wrong in those days. We did them live, and so, being a compulsive warrior, I used to worry if I dropped my script. If you heard the rustle of a page, you ruined the whole atmosphere. So one had to be terribly careful. And my other great worry was that my glasses steamed up. In the exciting episodes, where we were panting and and having to struggle in water or something, I suddenly couldn't see the thing. So that was always a great worry. So Coronation Express, to me, is always very frightening, although it also brings back the most wonderful memories. Paul Temple was to become the longest-running detective series on British radio. 
first broadcast in 1938, and finally bowing out in 1968, after an incredible 30-year run. The series, specially created for radio, was the brainchild of a young author called Francis Durbridge, who, while still a student at Birmingham University, had been discovered as a writer by a BBC producer, Martin C. Webster. It was the beginning of a very fruitful partnership. I always wanted to write thrillers from a very early age. When I first started writing, it was always my ambition to write mystery stories, detective stories. I was a great admirer of the people who wrote them at that particular period. But I started writing for radio with a serious play dealing with life in a departmental store. Uh, it was called Promotion. And fortunately for me, it, it was extremely popular. It, it was repeated uh, several times, and it was directed by Martin C. Webster. And one day I went in to see Martin and told him I had an idea for a detective serial. He said, well, let me see the first episode. And I wrote the first episode. He liked it very much. And from that moment, of course, we started a, what was a, a very long and a very successful partnership with Temple. He produced all the Temple serials. He never missed a single rehearsal or, or production. And uh, uh, he was a terrific radio producer. And I was very fortunate at that very early stage to, to have uh, his experience. What Francis Durbridge didn't explain in that 1982 interview was where the name Paul Temple came from. He said to have just plucked it out of the air, but I have another theory. In the late 30s, the most popular film star in Britain was one Shirley Temple. Could Hollywood's all-singing, all-dancing, curly-headed moppet have given her name to England's premier sleuth? By Timothy, as Paul would have said, there's a thought. Wherever Durbridge found the inspiration for the name of his character, what is certain is that the first ever episode of the first ever Temple serial, Send for Paul Temple, went on the air on April the 8th, 1938. And it was quite different from the Paul Temple that was to become an integral part of the regular radio listeners' imaginative landscapes in the 1950s. There was no Marjorie Westbury or Peter Cook, and no Coronation Scott. Paul was played by Hugh Morton, and Bernadette Hodgson played the girl reporter he subsequently married, whose real name was Louise Harvey, but who was better known by her nom de plume, Steve Trent. But all the labyrinthine complexity and baffling detail of plot that so endeared the serial to listeners was in place. The story had Paul Temple, novelist and criminologist, called in by Scotland Yard Commissioner Sir Graham Forbes, who was to remain a fixture in the series until the end, to help track down a mysterious jewel thief known as the Knave of Diamonds. In this, as in every subsequent serial, the villain was unmasked at the end of the final episode. But for most of the serial, the cast had no more idea than the listener who the villain was, as Peter Cook explains. One of the conditions that I made when I played Paul Temple was that I had the script posted to me before, so that I knew it absolutely, so that I wasn't nervous or, or wasn't too nervous. And so I was always posted the script, except the eighth episode, and they didn't even trust me with that. I wasn't given it because they thought I just might give away. So the cast didn't know until we actually read it for the first time. And it was so cunningly written by, by Francis that we really didn't know. Nothing remains in the archive of the first serial, but the final episode of the second serial has survived to give us a flavour of those early days. This is the Empire programme from the Midlands. Paul Temple and the Front Page a serial thriller by Francis Derby. I think you're marvellous. So do I, by Timothy. I really <laughs> don't know how you do it. It's a gift, darling. You simply buy a good old magnifying glass, and you put two and two together, and I say this butter toast is delicious. Paul? Yes, my pet? 
When did you first suspect Gerald? The day he came to Bramley Lodge and told us about Anne being good at impersonating people. Surely you didn't... Gerald know. said that he'd never been to the flat in Bloomsbury, and yet he knew which button to press in the lift in order to take us to the correct floor. And I couldn't have done that unless he'd been to the flat beforehand. The producer, Martin C. Webster himself, introduced the cast. Good evening, everyone. Well, I do sincerely hope you've enjoyed the show and that our efforts during the last eight weeks have met with your approval. May I take this opportunity of thanking all those listeners who so kindly wrote in after the last Paul Temple serial. There were well over 7,000 of you, and this is the first chance I've had to thank you all personally. Well, now to introduce the artists. Paul Temple. Yes, my dear. Was played by Hugh Morton. Paul Temple was up and running, and there were eventually to be a total of 20 Paul Temple serials and three one-off plays. Over the years, there were to be six different Paul Temples, but with only a handful of exceptions, there was always and irresistibly Marjorie Westbury as Steve. She trained as a singer at the Royal College of Music and only later turned to acting, joining the BBC Drama Repertory Company in 1942. As Steve, she managed to sound both sexy and ladylike and conjured up a captivating image of poised, good-humoured and elegant femininity, somewhat at odds with her actual appearance and manner. BBC drama producer Enid Williams, then a young studio manager, remembers her. You just knew that she was the most glamorous, incredible, you know, six-foot blonde, marvellous woman ever. And, of course, Marjorie herself was a very small, very round lady with rather a strident sort of voice um, in ordinary conversation. It's just that she had this absolute magic with a microphone. She had a great charm in her voice, and, and it was compelling. I'll tell you something most extraordinary... Marjorie, while we were in one of the series, a woman wrote to her from Cornwall or somewhere down there and said, I love your voice so much that I'm going to leave you all my money. And Marjorie wrote back and she said, Now, I am not the willowy blonde that I sound and you're falling in, in love with the wrong thing. I am, I don't know what she said, but she was a bit cottage loafy. But the woman wrote back and said, I'm still going to leave you all my money. So Marjorie very bravely went down to uh, Cornwall, drove herself down, and said, now look, this is, this is me, and you've got relatives and people, and I don't want your money, I can earn my own living. And the woman said, I don't care, I think your voice is so marvellous. And Marjorie came back, three days later the woman committed suicide, and left Marjorie every penny and every possession she had. Now this is the power of a voice. Marjorie Westbury herself, interviewed in 1982 recalled her days in the Temple serials. I remember all my husbands. I had six. The first one was Hugh Morton, who I still see around on the box occasionally. Then Carl Bernard played one. Do you remember Carl? Very, very funny man. He had us in hysterics. It was very difficult to play with Carl. One of the very best was Barry Morse, who, um, nice ending to this story, because Barry became very ill. He had a tubercular... Lung, and he had to get out of this country and he went to Canada not only cured him but became a very big star over there you know he played this big detective series Barry Morse then Kim Peacock then Boney Crawford Howard Marion Crawford played one and then of course Peter Cook for the rest of it with me we just went on and on and on for years Brian Doyle a long time temple aficionado also remembers all the Pauls my favourite temple of those days, personally speaking, was Barry Morse. He was a very smooth, good-looking young actor, masses of stage and screen um, experience, 
People may remember him in that very successful series, The Fugitive, in which he played Lieutenant Gerard of the American police force. Some years ago, I happened to meet Barry Morse, and I said to him, uh, the effect he'd had on me is Paul Temple, and he couldn't believe it. He said it was about uh, ten days' work for me, if that. He said, how old were you when you heard the, the serial? And I said, oh, about 14, I suppose. And he said, ah, that explains it. An impressionable age. It was Peter Cook who, for my generation, was the definitive Paul Temple. Well-bred, assured and incisive. I'm extremely lucky in that I have a voice, or had a voice, that the microphone liked. And this is rather comparable to a film star, the camera falling in love with her. And I had a lucky voice. I got, used to have a tremendous amount of work, actually. But I did play twice, I think, in Paul Temple when somebody else was playing Paul Temple. I think I once played the villain and I once played something else. So the producer and the author of Paul Temple knew my work and one day they came to me and they said, would you like to be Paul Temple? So I said, well, of course, it'd be absolutely marvellous. And Francis said... Before we have any agreement, you'll come out and have lunch with me tomorrow. So I got awfully worried. I thought, now what in the hell can he have found out that I can't do or something or other? So we had lunch together and uh, we talked about a lot of subjects and eventually he, it came to why. He said, now let us get this absolutely clear. I am the writer of Paul Temple. I know you're a playwright. I had two plays on in the West End at the time, actually. And I do not want any of your ideas or words put into Paul Temple. And, of course, I agreed. Of vital importance in the creation of atmospheric drama and tension on radio is the use of sound effects, and Paul Temple is no exception. Compact discs and samplers make combining effects much easier now than was the case 40 years ago. Marjorie Westbury remembered with admiration studio manager Patience Sheffield's expertise. Patience in those days in Temple was on grams. And she'd have eight turntables, eight, no tape recorders, no pre-recorded anything. Now, suppose we were in a sequence in a car. Paul and I would be in a car, one disc, coming along nicely, and a change down. Paul, there's a corner. I was always interfering, you know, slow down for the corner. Then there'd be something, then, God, he's going to hit us. Another car coming, another disc, you see. The crash on a disc. Um, send for the police, send for the ambulance. Ambulance coming on another disc, this, that, and the other. And I've known her have eight. And she never missed a trick, single-handed. The, the, the thunder and lightning was absolute hell in those days. When we, we had a lot of thunder and lightning in various scenes. And it, for some reason, they couldn't put it into the studio. So while we were fighting in the water with great waves and the thunder and the lightning, it was absolutely silent for us. So it was jolly difficult because you were shouting out and... and the. Lightning and the thunder were controlled by a light. And when the light came on, one knew one must either shout very much louder or, or not talk. And, of course, it was great fun for us. You'd practically cross-eyed on a page like that. You'd have 12 lights on a page. <laughs> I do remember we were shoved along into the lavatory one day because the acoustics there were just like a cave. And Margie and I played a scene over the lavatory pan. Most extraordinary. Another feature of the serials was Webster's use of a regular repertory company of actors. Martin was wonderful because he tried to engage them if they could, even if they came as a Russian countess the first time. They would then come in as a Spanish dancer or, or, or something. The great thing about Paul Temple was that we all loved doing it, and anybody would have done anything to be in it, actually. Time and again, the names of Simon Lack, 
James Thomason, June Tobin, Rafe Truman and Griselda Harvey turn up in the credits. Brian Doyle remembered with particular affection Olaf Olsen. He sounded like a sort of Radio Peter Lorre. He, he always had a thick accent and he was always one of the chief suspects. And he's always saying, but Mr. Temple, I hope you don't think that I did the murder. I'm innocent, I tell you, innocent. And uh, he was, we all had a great affection for Olaf Olsen. He never seemed to appear in anything else but Paul Temple. The combination of driving plots and engaging performances captivated the listenership. Then, as now, teenage boys found the combination of heroism and action compelling. Brian Doyle, then a schoolboy, remembers. I think the first one I heard uh, was uh, Carl Bernard as uh, Paul Temple in uh, Paul Temple Intervenes. And we used to... Uh, I was remember the villain in that turned out to be a rather pleasant young man called Roger Story who evaded justice at the end by throwing himself through a plate glass window on about the sixth floor of a hotel. And the following day at school, we were all saying, but how could he throw himself to... That's, that plate glass is so toughened, you know, he couldn't do it. And then somebody else would say, well, perhaps he threw a big ashtray and broke the glass before he jumped through. And we discuss all the, the, the details. Why else were Paul and Steve so popular for so long? They were unusual in their field, for fictional detectives have often been dedicated, wise, celibate figures, rooting out evil, hearing confessions, acting as substitute priests in a secular age. Sherlock Holmes and Inspector Morse are typical examples. Paul Temple, despite the priestly overtones of his surname, was married, and his partnership with Steve remains at the centre of the serials. Perhaps the best comparison is with Dashiell Hammett's husband and wife detective team, Nick and Nora Charles, in the popular Thin Man film series, starring William Powell and Myrna Loy. As Peter Cook and Marjorie Westbury explain, the domestic detail counterpointed the detection, rendering the characters more human and approachable. The atmosphere between Marjorie and myself, I think, did contribute to the success because we were very close... It did work up into a, an audience sort of affection for Paul and Steve because they were, they were a very happily married couple. And there was all this nice comfy chat and uh, a lot of badinagerie about how much I paid for my hats and that sort of thing. Paul, where did you put that new cream shirt with the collar attached? Mm -hmm. It's in the wardrobe, dear. I'm sure. I've looked there. Well, it was there last night. I distinctly remember putting it oh, there. Oh, really? What's the matter? You're wearing it. What? <laughs> I typically so am. You really are the limit. We used to get enormous fan mail with Marjorie and I, and a great many villagers would just say, were we married? Really married, which shows that the atmosphere did come over, which always, always rather excited me. So if in some respects Paul and Steve were different from the classic detectives of popular fiction, in another sense, Paul Temple fitted the great tradition precisely the sleuth as gentleman amateur. It's only in the last 40 years that the policeman has been at the centre of the crime story. Previously, the gentleman was of more interest than the player. Temple was educated at Rugby and Magdalen College, Oxford, the son of a general, and earns his living as a crime novelist. And a jolly good living it must have been, as the first serial finds him living in a country house, Bramley Lodge, near Evesham. Later, he and Steve move to a luxury flat in London, 127A Eaton Square, which was furnished with antiques, decorated with old masters, and boasted a cellar full of vintage Burgundy and claret from Justerinian brooks. Such a resolutely upper-middle-class menage would not have been complete without servants. We had a splendid, faithful man-servant, lucky us, a young man called Charlie, who... Well, there were innumerable Charlies, but they were always there. Good morning, sir. 
Did you ring? Yes, Charlie, I rang. Bring some more marmalade, please. Okay. Anything else? Yes, some toast and some butter. Blimey, you haven't half got an appetite this morning. What about coffee? No, I'm all right for coffee. But I expect Mrs. Temple will want some tea. She's in the kitchen now, making it. You know, women are funny about tea, aren't they? They're funny about a great many things, Charlie, but let's go into that at this time of the morning. Okay. Oh, Charlie, I've left the cooker on. Yes, all right, Mrs. Temple. Don't forget the toast, Charlie. Okey-doke. Paul always showed a loving and chivalrous concern for Steve, wanting to protect her from violence and danger. But just as regularly, she insisted on staying at his side. I want you to go away for two or three days into the country. Why? Well, Yes, you want me to go into hiding, is that what you mean? No, not exactly, darling. Things are coming to a head, aren't they? Yes, dear, they are. I'm not going away. Now, don't be stupid about this, darling. Paul, dear, I am not going away. (sighs) All right. Steve, who regularly faced kidnap and sometimes death, was quite resourceful when it came to dealing with opponents. Tea tastes awfully bitter. Is yours all right? Yes. Mine's perfectly all right. Well, perhaps it's my imagination. Mrs. Temple, do you mind if I ask you a very frank question? No. What does your husband think of me? Does he think I'm mixed up in this Van Dyke affair? Are you? No. Believe me, after what happened last night, if I knew the identity of Van Dyke, I should go straight to Scotland Yard. Last night? Yes, the murder, Miss Mary Desmond. Ah, so you think Mrs. Desmond was murdered by Van Dyke? Well, don't you? It seems... Perfectly obvious to me that the same person who murdered... What is it? I don't know. I suddenly felt dizzy. I shouldn't try to stand, Miss Faber. But I shouldn't feel like this. What's the matter with me? Don't you know? What do you mean? You didn't come here to talk to Paul about what happened that night at the bungalow. You came because Van Dyke sent you. You came here because Van Dyke told you to kidnap me. What have you done? I haven't done anything. You've done it yourself. What? You put something into my tea while I was answering the phone, didn't you? But you drank it. You said the tea was bitter. You said... I wanted you to think that the tea was bitter. I wanted you to think that everything was going according to plan. Your plan, Miss Faber. What do you mean? Why do you think I asked you to speak to my husband? I don't know. Don't you? Oh, you're not very bright. While you were on the phone, I changed your cup for mine. Paul and Steve were constructed as complementary embodiments of masculinity and femininity. He, gentlemanly, single-minded, and an embodiment of deductive reasoning. She, with a love of new hats and an infallible sense of intuition. You know, Paul, Betty Wayne is definitely worried. You think so? As soon as I mentioned Reynolds, she coloured up, she turned her back on me. There's something funny going on there, you know. Yes. I'm beginning to get a sort of intuition about this case, Paul. Good old intuition, You can laugh, but I've been right before. (laughs) No, no, I'm not laughing, darling. I have a great respect for that good old intuition of yours. The listeners were also happy to tune in for the comforting familiarity. It was not just the well-loved characters, but also the carefully crafted plots, which could be relied on both for suspense and the staple ingredients of action-adventure. For instance, you could be pretty sure that during the course of the serial, there would be a bomb in the car. Listen, do you hear that ticking noise? It's the dashboard clock, surely. The clock stop. Look, twenty past six. Come on, Steve, get out quickly. Yes. Come on, across the street. Right. Look, here's a taxi. We might as well grab it and get home. Taxi. Where to, Governor? Eaton Square, please. Oh! 
Oh, what the blazes was that? The temple's car would be raked with bullets. Oh! What's happening? Steve, look at our car. Just look at it. There would be a significant, if mysterious, warning. Mr. Temple. Yeah? Whatever happens, don't go down to Reading. I have no intention of going down to Reading. Yes, I know, but... Well, don't. That's all. And many of them ended with that authentic 50s event, the cocktail party, where Temple would dramatically expose the villain. Temple, forgive my asking, but was this cocktail party your idea? It was. Well, don't you think it would help if you came straight to the point? What point? Look, we're not exactly children. It's perfectly obvious why you invited us here this evening. Every person in this room is connected in some way or other with the Gilbert case. Well, what's all this about, Temple? Exactly. I'll tell you what it's all about, Inspector. A girl called Brenda Sterling was murdered, and her fiancé, Howard Gilbert, was arrested. You all know what happened. Gilbert was tried and eventually convicted. But he didn't commit the murder. No, he didn't, Reynolds. Then who did? Don't you know, Mr. Fagan? Well, don't you? Look out, Temple. Stand back. If anyone comes near me, I warn you, I'll shoot. Although earlier serials took place in Yorkshire, the Midlands and Scotland, the series had by the 1950s settled down firmly in the home counties, with the mayhem taking place around Farnham, Maidenhead and Guildford. The series remains an infallible guide to the manners and mores of Middle England in that now almost impossibly remote era before the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. And perhaps the series provided listeners with a window to a kinder, more morally certain age. Etiquette and correctness are important. For instance, Paul Temple calls all the men by their surname. And there's an almost Mandarin politeness about introducing everybody. Good evening. Welcome to La Mortella. My name is Fabian. Why, hello, Mr. Fabian. Hello, Miss Ferguson. How nice to see you again. I don't think you know my wife, Steve. This is Louis Fabian. How do you do, Mrs. Temple? How do you do? Hello, Temple. Good evening. Oh, hello, Reynolds. Good evening, Mr. Reynolds. Good evening, Mrs. Temple. Good evening, Mr. Temple. I think you know Miss Wynne. Yes, of course. We've met before this evening. This well-mannered style and the recurring elements in the plots led to good-natured parody even at the time. The very first Paul Temple, Hugh Morton, turned up in the late 40s in the hit radio comedy show Itmar, playing a character called Paul Tremble. Even Peter Cook was tempted into parody, something he now regrets. Margie Resby and I had a wonderful idea one day. We wrote a ninth episode, sending up Paul Temple the series, doing all the sorts of... I said by Timothy every five words. And so we recorded the whole thing, playing all the scenes ourselves. So when the uh, series was finished, as people were packing up to go home, uh, to their astonishment, over the, over the microphone came, would you just wait while we play with the ninth episode? And I have always regretted it. Francis and his wife were there, and Martin was there, and of course they didn't know, and I think he was hurt by it. You know, all authors are very, very touchy, as I know myself. And this is the one thing about the whole series which really makes me rather sad. Although Durbridge went on to become the foremost television thriller writer of the 1950s and 1960s and an accomplished playwright, he remained in the folk memory indelibly linked with Paul Temple. When he died last month at the age of 85, the obituaries almost universally led off the accounts of his life with his creation of Paul Temple. Although he was primarily a radio detective, Paul Temple rapidly became a multimedia creation. Durbridge novelised many of his radio scripts. Four of them were turned into low-budget British films of the late 1940s, with John Bentley as Paul Temple. 
there was a Temple strip cartoon in the London Evening News in the 1950s. And between 1969 and 1971, a television series, not, however, scripted by Durbridge. Brian Doyle didn't rate these alternative versions. John Bender was a good, competent British actor, famous for wearing his white raincoat. He appeared in innumerable British B-pictures, wearing a spotless white raincoat, which never seemed to get dirty, no matter how many fights or chases he was involved in. Um, but they were entertaining, but they weren't outstanding. And then, of course, in 69, I think it was, uh, Paul Temple hit television with an actor called Francis Matthews playing the part. Matthews is a good actor, good light comedy actor. His impersonations of Cary Grant were legendary in show business. And uh, I don't know, he was all right as Paul Temple, but he didn't make a big impression. Of course, Steve, I'm afraid, was badly miscast. Uh, an actress called Ros Drinkwater played a good actress, nice lady, I'm sure, but she wasn't Steve. And uh, Paul Temple on television wasn't the Paul Temple we've grown to love and, and grow up with on radio. It's a measure of the impact of the radio versions that when you read Durbridge's novels about Paul Temple and Steve, you hear the voices of Peter Cook and Marjorie Westbrook. For despite their appearances in films, books, television and comic strips, Paul and Steve remain ever and supremely the radio detectives. Radio Detectives was written and presented by Geoffrey Richards and produced by John Rolfe.